Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, September 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. China hosts Syria's Bashar al-Assad. Saudi Crown Prince MBS says Israel normalization is getting closer. Biden expands temporary protected status to 472,000 Venezuelans. Poland decides to stop supplying Ukraine with weapons. Iran moves to increase penalties for dress code violations. The U.S. Senate confirms the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman. Venezuela seizes control of a gang-run prison. The U.S. Fed leaves interest rates unchanged. Cisco buys AI firm Splunk for $28 billion. And Rupert Murdoch steps down as chairman of Fox. In our top story, China hosts Bashar al-Assad for a summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Al-Arabia, The National, The Times of Israel, and New York Times. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad arrived in China's city of Hangzhou on Thursday. It's his first visit to the PRC since 2004, as he continues his efforts to end his country's diplomatic isolation since 2011. According to China's foreign ministry spokeswoman, Assad's visit strengthened political mutual trust and cooperation in various fields between the two countries, while elevating bilateral relations to a new level. The foreign ministry also said the two countries share a traditional and deep friendship, adding that Syria was one of the first countries to establish diplomatic relations with PRC 67 years ago. Assad is expected to attend Saturday's opening ceremony of the Asian Games. Accompanied by Foreign Minister Faisal Makdad and Economy and Trade Minister Mohammed Al-Khalil, Assad will also meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping, Syria's presidential office announced. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said Assad attaches, quote, great importance to strengthening bilateral ties. Although Beijing didn't directly support the Syrian government during the country's civil war, it was a diplomatic ally, including through the UN Security Council. Assad's trip comes after Syria was readmitted to the Arab League this year, and Damascus 2022 announced it would join China's Belt and Road Initiative. Assad also expressed support for China's role in the March PRC-brokered restoration of Iran-Saudi relations. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have some narrative spins on this story, starting with a pro-China narrative from Global Times. The future of stability and peace in the Middle East will be ensured by China, not the U.S. China seeks good relations with the entire region, shunning the American strategy of provocation and war. The U.S. has failed to find any workable solutions to the region's many conflicts and disputes, and now it's Beijing's turn to help build and develop the region rather than destroy it. The future of Syria and the rest of the region will hopefully be intimately tied to good relations with Beijing. The anti-China narrative comes from The National. In short, Syria's reintegration into the Arab world and the international community more broadly has already hit a dead end, as Assad is not capable of fixing Syria's problems, nor is he interested in doing so. China's main goal isn't to help rebuild Syria or fix Assad's image. Rather, Beijing seeks to tout that it doesn't need to align with the Western consensus on pariah governments like the Assad regime. From Assad's perspective, he may believe that China is the best chance to keep the Iranians, with whom his government is increasingly at odds at bay. Saudi's crown prince says an Israel normalization deal is getting closer. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Guardian, Financial Times, Times of Israel, and Al Jazeera. 
Saudi Arabia is moving closer to normalizing bilateral relations with Israel. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said on Wednesday in his first interview on television since 2019. In the interview, which aired shortly after U.S. President Joe Biden and Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu discussed the issue on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in New York, Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler said that every day we get closer to normalizing relations with Israel. Denying earlier reports that the talks had been suspended, bin Salman said that for Riyadh, the Palestinian issue is very important, adding, we need to solve that part. Crown Prince Mohammed's remarks come after reports on Tuesday that the U.S. is exploring a security agreement with Riyadh similar to those with its Asian allies, with bin Salman reportedly seeking Washington's assistance in developing a civilian nuclear program. Regarding the potential defense pact, the Crown Prince added during the Wednesday interview that a U.S.-Saudi agreement would prevent Riyadh from turning to other armed suppliers. He also said that if Iran obtained a nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia would also have to get one. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Netanyahu reportedly tasked senior Israeli nuclear and security experts to cooperate with U.S. negotiations on a proposal for a U.S.-run uranium enrichment operation in Saudi Arabia as part of the potential Jerusalem-Riyadh normalization agreement. Scott, thank you for the facts of this story. We begin the round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the Times of Israel. Recent developments in bin Salman's statements about normalizing Saudi-Israeli relations are promising. This is also because it's now no longer a question of whether an agreement is possible, but of the concrete terms of a deal between Riyadh and Tel Aviv. Moreover, Netanyahu has acknowledged that a rapprochement depends on a solution to the Palestinian issue. The task of normalizing ties is complicated and complex, but the conditions for a historic breakthrough are better than they have been for a long time. And The Messenger brings us an establishment-critical narrative. Despite all the media hype about a possible normalization of Saudi-Israeli ties, Washington's efforts are only the latest in a long line of U.S. diplomatic initiatives in the Middle East. While Biden and Netanyahu seek an agreement with Riyadh for domestic, economic, and geopolitical reasons, bin Salman is in no hurry and clearly the one setting the direction and pace of negotiations. Expect the usual U.S.-sponsored peace processing concerning a possible two-state solution, but no breakthrough in the coming years. The Metaculous Prediction community giving us a statistics-based nerd narrative. They say there's a 57% chance that Saudi Arabia will normalize relations with Israel by the year 2031 if Iran gets a nuclear bomb by then. President Biden expands temporary protected status to 472,000 Venezuelans. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, USA Today, Associated Press, NBC, and CNN. On Wednesday, the Biden administration announced that it would offer 472,000 Venezuelan migrants temporary protected status, or TPS, allowing them to obtain work permits and apply for deportation protection. Under the direction of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the move will add hundreds of thousands of migrants to the almost 243,000 who already qualify for TPS and extend it by 18 months for those who arrived in the U.S. on or before July 31st. Mayorkas said they will also accelerate work authorizations through a mobile app called CBP-1 for people who have arrived since January at land crossings with Mexico, as well as for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans who have financial sponsors and arrive at an airport. 
The White House also announced that it will send 800 soldiers to aid Customs and Border Protection at the U.S.-Mexico border in addition to the existing 2,500 state and National Guard personnel, as well as expand its program to rapidly deport migrants who cross as a family. In response, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said he appreciates the move, but added that tens of thousands are still arriving in the city every month. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said Venezuelans currently make up 41% of migrants living in the state's shelters. Migrant encounters at the border jumped to more than 180,000 in July, with officials claiming they made another 45,000 encounters in the last five days. Alongside New York City, which has so far taken in 110,000 migrants, Eagle Pass, Texas on Wednesday saw an influx of Venezuelan migrants, prompting the closure of its main bridge. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Republican narrative on this story as well, this one from the Washington Examiner. After years of gaslighting the public by saying they weren't welcoming illegal immigrants into the country, the Biden administration is now offering hundreds of thousands of lawbreakers quick and easy work visas. Even New York City Democrats have expressed anger over this, as their city will now be seen as a welcome mat for more border crossers to inhabit, giving the federal government's open border policy. Counter that with the Democratic narrative coming from the Journal Record. The problem isn't who or how many people are entering America's major cities, but rather that they aren't able to obtain work visas and therefore rely heavily on tax dollar funded shelters. Now that Biden has removed the red tape, these asylum seekers who have been eagerly awaiting a chance to start a new life in the U.S. can finally join society and contribute to the economy, just as the immigrants of the past were able to do. Next up, Poland to stop supplying Ukraine with weapons amid grain row. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Guardian, Politico, BBC News, and Ukraine Forum. Poland, one of Ukraine's closest allies in its war with Russia, said it will no longer provide Kyiv with weapons amid an escalating dispute over Ukrainian grain exports. We are no longer transferring weapons to Ukraine because we are now arming Poland with more modern weapons. Polish Prime Minister Matsuis Morawiecki said on Wednesday, stating further, If you don't want to be on the defensive, you have to have something to defend yourself with. He insisted, however, that the move would not endanger Ukraine. The remarks came after the European Commission last week lifted restrictions on the export of Ukrainian grain to five EU countries, including Poland, prompting Poland and some others to reintroduce national bans in apparent violation of EU laws. The countries argued that an influx of Ukrainian grain has hurt local farmers. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky took issue with the move, stating in his address to the UN General Assembly on Tuesday, It's alarming to see how some in Europe play out solidarity in a political theater, making a thriller from the grain. They may seem to play their own role, but in fact they are helping to set the stage to a Moscow actor. Comments sparked an angry response from Poland, which summoned the Ukrainian ambassador and warned of further retaliation. Morwicki later said, We were the first to do a lot for Ukraine, and that's why we expect for them to understand our interests. Of course, we respect all of their problems, but for us, the interests of our farmers are the most important thing. On Thursday, Mykola Solsky, Ukraine's agriculture minister, said that he has held talks with Polish counterpart Robert Telus and said the pair agreed to find a solution that takes into account the interests of both countries. The next round of talks is set to take place in the coming days. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Ukrainska Pravda. Despite this bump in otherwise strong relations, Poland remains one of Ukraine's strongest allies. Representatives of both countries have met and have had a fruitful meeting in which both sides agreed to consider each other's concerns in order to find a viable solution. And Narrative B comes from TVP World. 
Ukraine made it unacceptable comments about Poland on the public stage despite all that the country has done for it. Poland will fulfill existing weapons contracts, but going forward, it will prioritize its own security so there will be no new weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And the nerds of Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Poland's Economist's Democracy Index will be at least 7.01 in the year 2030. Iran passes a hijab bill. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Guardian, CNBC TV 18, Independent, and The New Arab. Iran's parliament passed a bill Wednesday that imposes heavier penalties on women for violating the Islamic dress code, including jail terms of up to 10 years. The measure also seeks to identify people who promote nudity or indecency or mock the rules. This applies to both online and offline spaces. The hijab and chastity bill, which was passed by a parliamentary vote of 152 to 34, will now be submitted for approval to the Guardian Council, which is a conservative-leaning entity comprised of both clerics and jurists. The UN, which described the bill as, quote, gender apartheid, alleged the country appeared to be governing through systemic discrimination with the intention of suppressing women and girls into total submission. The bill comes a year after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was detained by morality police for not wearing the hijab, sparked nationwide demonstrations, and killed over 500 protesters. Many Iranian women have since defied the Islamic dress code, pushing Iran's executive and judiciary to propose a bill to protect society and strengthen family life. The ruling conservatives argue that relaxing the rules would rupture social norms. Thank you, Eric, for the facts. The anti-Iran narrative comes from Al Jazeera. The bill is inherently discriminatory and amounts to gender persecution. The Iranian government is using culture as a tool to weaponize public morals and violate women's fundamental rights, including freedom of opinion and expression. The pro-Iran narrative is coming from IRNA. Contrary to Western propaganda, Islam and the Shia sect respect and protect women. The wearing of a hijab should not be decontextualized and misrepresented by the West, which attempts to undermine the important position of women in Islam and in Iran. We have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 2% chance that Iran will disempower its guidance patrol modesty police before the year 2024. The Senate circumvents Tuberville's blocks on military confirmations. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS News, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, The Associated Press, Daily Caller, and NPR Online News. The U.S. Senate on Wednesday confirmed Air Force General C.Q. Brown as the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, getting past Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican of Alabama's, blocks on military nominations by holding a full vote of the body. The Senate did the same to confirm General Randy George as Army Chief of Staff on Thursday, and it's expected to confirm General Eric Smith as Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps by the end of Thursday. Tuberville since March has been imposing a hold on military nominees as a form of protest against the U.S. Department of Defense's policy of reimbursing service members for travel done to obtain an abortion. Typically, military promotions that require Senate confirmation are done by unanimous consent. To go around Tuberville's hold, Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, forced a vote by invoking cloture, a step to end debate on a topic. Before the Senate confirmed Brown 83 to 11. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin the round of spins with a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. 
Schumer could have called these votes months ago, but he and the rest of the Democrats were too busy trying to paint Republicans as bad actors. Tuberville is just standing up for the right to life and the rule of law, which is fully in his rights, but Democrats are determined to smear him and any Republicans who stand up for conservative values. And counter that with this Democratic narrative from CNN. Despite these confirmations, Senator Tuberville's holds on hundreds of other nominations put the country's national security and military readiness at risk. Voting on each nomination would take an inordinate amount of time and would empower senators to take similar action anytime they want to make a statement about a political issue. If Tuberville really cares about the U.S., he'll drop his blockade. Venezuela seizes control of Tokoran prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, BBC News, Al Jazeera, El País, and Telesur. Venezuela has reportedly conducted an operation involving 11,000 security forces personnel to retake, quote, total control of a prison that had been run by a powerful gang for years. Members of the Tren de Aragua controlled the Tocaron prison where they were allowed to roam freely and enjoy hotel-like amenities, including a pool, nightclub, and a mini-zoo. Family members and partners of the inmates also lived in the penitentiary. The Venezuelan government released a statement Wednesday congratulating law enforcement for seizing control of the prison and added that the operation had, quote, dismantled the center of conspiracy and crime. President Nicolas Maduro called the mission a great success. Interior Minister Remigio Ceballos told state media that the prison would be completely evacuated and that the inmates were being transferred to another facility. Family members say they were kicked out and shouted, that's ours, as police seized items such as motorcycles and televisions. However, some inmates escaped during the operation, and the leader of the trend de Aragua, Hector Rutherford Guerrero Flores, known as El Nino Guerrero, has not been captured. Some reports suggest Guerrero was allowed to operate his gang from the prison with the quiet support of the government. The Venezuelan government says it will now start the second phase of its operation, which includes searching for and capturing fugitive criminals. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Telesur. Venezuelan forces conducted an extremely successful and well-coordinated takedown of the gang-run Tocoran prison and cleared inmates out of the facility. The government will now embark on a phase two where it will hunt down any fugitive that escaped the initial raid. After years of living in luxury, members of the trendy Aragua gang are finally being held accountable, and Venezuelan authorities are rightfully cracking down on criminal enterprises. The establishment critical narrative comes from Caracas Chronicles. After years of allowing one of Venezuela's most brutal gangs to turn a prison into a de facto luxury resort, authorities have finally done something about the situation. However, the fact that the gang's leader hasn't been captured shows that the notoriously corrupt Venezuelan government may have let the career criminal off the hook. The Tocaron prison is emblematic of Venezuela's declining criminal justice system, and it seems that the government is still allowing shady activities even when it claims to so-called crack down on crime. The U.S. Fed leaves interest rates unchanged. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by Trading Economics, NBC News, CNBC, the Associated Press, Reuters, and NPR Online News. Following 11 rate hikes in 18 months, the U.S. Federal Reserve chose on Wednesday to leave benchmark interest rates unchanged between 5.25% and 5.5% in the bid to tackle inflation. The decision is the result of a two-day policy meeting with Fed Chair Jerome Powell forecasting that a restrictive monetary policy was likely set to last until 2026. The 5.25% to 5.5% range remains the highest rate in around 22 years. 
The news comes as the inflation rate for the year to August, according to the core personal consumption expenditures price index, dropped to 3.7%. Powell stated that a soft landing was the primary objective for the U.S. economy, with the Fed being fairly close to the end of its cycle of rate increases. Analysts expect the Fed to raise interest one more time before the end of 2023. Interest rates were last raised by a quarter percent in July. The Fed also adapted its U.S. economic forecast from June, with its GDP growth prediction in 2023 up 1.1% to 2.1%. 2024 GDP increased by 0.4% to 1.5%, and unemployment rates also down from 4.1% to 3.8% and from 4.5% to 4.1% in 2023 and 2024, respectively. The Fed's target inflation rate is 2%. The Federal Open Market Committee is set to meet next on October 31st with another interest rate decision on November 1st. Scott, thank you for the facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from MSN. Signals of a potential soft landing by the Fed are becoming ever clearer, and a cooler labor market is a positive sign that the U.S. economy is moving in the right direction. However, with inflation still nowhere near the desired 2% mark and multiple potential hiccups looming, there's more to do before consumers can finally breathe a sigh of relief, which is why the Fed is right to stay its course. And The Hill brings us the establishment critical narrative. By doubling down on high interest rates for longer, the Fed is risking a financial crisis and economic recession in 2024, with approximately $24.5 billion of the $1.5 trillion loan market already defaulting with 2023 expected to be the third worst defaulting year in U.S. history. It is hard to see how a further collapse will be avoided and debts repaid in the current economic environment. As expected, a statistics-based nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 22% chance that the U.S. will enter a deflationary period before the year 2030. I would say uh, keep saving your nickels, everybody. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I've seen your jar. In the event, it's a big jar. I really do have a big change jar. It's, a, <laughs> it's on my, It's a, I've been saving it for like 10 years. I, I, I really don't know how much is in there. The New York Giants talking jar, but long ago it stopped talking. Cisco buys AI firm Splunk in a historic $28 billion deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, CNBC, Reuters, and New York Times. Technology giant Cisco agreed on Thursday to buy Splunk, a data analysis and artificial intelligence-powered cybersecurity company, for $28 billion in one of the largest business acquisitions of the year and the age of AI. Splunk's AI-driven technology helps businesses minimize the risk of hacks and fix technical issues faster by monitoring and analyzing their data. Though regulatory approval is still needed, Cisco has offered to pay $157 per share, which is 31% higher than Splunk's last closing price. While the news sent shares of Splunk rising to 21% to $145.04, Cisco's stock dropped 4% due to uncertainty surrounding regulatory scrutiny. Cisco, the world's largest maker of computer networking equipment, has been moving towards cybersecurity improvements in recent years to meet growing consumer demand. Its previous record-breaking purchase was the acquisition of cable setup box maker Scientific Atlanta in 2006 for $6.9 billion. This marks Cisco's latest step away from its roots in network hardware and towards AI-driven software subscriptions, a move driven by acquisitions. This is its eighth takeover this year. The deal, dependent on regulatory approvals, is expected to close by the end of the third quarter of 2024. Thanks for that tech update, Eric. Narrative A comes from Seeking Alpha. 
While some analysts are expressing sticker shock at the cost of this historic deal, the purchase price of $157 per share in cash for Splunk is fair, given the company's predicted revenue. Joining forces with a cybersecurity company like Splunk positions Cisco to compete in the space against other tech giants like Google, Adobe, and Amazon. It's a well-designed strategic move. Narrative B coming from Financial Times. Cisco is trying to reposition itself from a router and networking equipment maker to a software and recurring revenue player. This kind of challenging pivot won't happen overnight, even by throwing lots of money at the problem. The fact that Cisco has repeatedly missed its profit targets adds another layer of complexity. Time will show if this deal is the right path to moving forward. And we have a third narrative C on this story from The Verge. AI companies, as is the case in the broader tech industry, are now being swallowed up by corporate giants for the purpose of growing profits. AI image and text generators are expensive due to the amount of data involved, but that doesn't mean the government should allow these behemoths to monopolize the market. This is just the dawn of a new economic era, so regulators should begin working to stop monopolization before it's too late. Our final story, Rupert Murdoch steps down as chairman of Fox Corporation and News Corp. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, ABC, CNBC, Associated Press, CNN, and the New York Post. Australian media mogul Rupert Murdoch announced Thursday morning that he is stepping down as chairman of Fox Corp and News Corp and will transition into the chairman emeritus position of the two corporations. Murdoch's son, Lachlan, will become News Corp's new chair and continue serving as executive chair and CEO of Fox Corp. The younger Murdoch released a statement congratulating his father on his remarkable 70-year career. The 92-year-old Rupert Murdoch had been winding down his hands-on work with the conservative media companies and had been working from home since July of 2022. Despite being less in the spotlight, Murdoch still continued working behind the scenes. Murdoch is best known for his role at Fox News Channel, which he founded in 1996 as a key jewel in his conservative news empire. Fox has had a tumultuous recent span as it paid out a $787.5 million lawsuit to Dominion voting over claims questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 election. However, in his memo to News Corp's 35,000 employees, Murdoch maintained that his companies are in robust health, while adding that he was healthy as well. Murdoch has been involved in media since 1952, when he inherited an Adelaide newspaper from his father. Scott, thank you for those facts. The right narrative is our first spin. It's coming from Fox News. Rupert Murdoch is the definition of a living legend in the media industry. The architect of the world's most successful cable news outlet, Murdoch pushed news and media into a revolutionary direction while always doing it his way. While some may disagree with Rupert's politics, there's no doubting his success and legacy as a pioneer of his time. And fittingly, MSNBC counters with the left narrative spin. Rupert Murdoch will be remembered as one of the most dangerous media moguls of his time and the creator of a right-wing media giant that gave us the creeping authoritarianism of Donald Trump. Murdoch provided a massive platform for conspiracy theorists and misinformation that plague our world today. History will memorialize the harm he caused to democracy. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, September 22nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. 
Find out more at Verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.